there, wonderful people, and welcome to another episode of FUDS on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. That's me. And, oh, I'm not sure why I left my voice going up as if I was going to finish that sentence in another way. <laughs> I wasn't. So, <laughs> hi. <laughs> there are a number of notable film directors to have come from New York City, though some are particularly strongly associated with it. And... Some of those are particularly strongly associated with one bar in particular. Some of these filmmakers are short, bespectacled, and often act in their own films. However, today we're talking about one associated with Brooklyn, who isn't a creep and whose films we actually think are any good, so we know who that rules out. So, prompted by the recent release of The Five Bloods, we've decided to look at the work of Spike Lee, which, well, if you've noticed the episode title, you already knew. <laughs> uh, and that's for our main topic episode this month. Though, through a combination of an inability to suitably pare down a list and chronic procrastination, we are spreading things out, declaring July 2020 Spike Lee Month at Fudson Film and bringing you three episodes covering his work. We're beginning in this episode, and in an entirely perverse way, at the beginning. <laughs> From Lee's directorial feature debut, She's Gotta Have It, up to his 1995 crime drama, Clockers. One other film from this period, Jungle Fever, was covered in our Wesley Snipes episode last year. And it's probably also worth mentioning we've also covered Lee's Inside Man in a compare and contrast episode along with Dog Day Afternoon. Both episodes, of course, well worth checking out. Hint, hint. (laughs) But uh, before we move on, have you any opening statements before we begin, Scott? Are any of these new to you? Or did you, like me, manage to forget at one point that about 10 Spike Lee films you'd already seen <laughs> and somehow convince yourself you'd only seen 25th Hour? No, no. Um, there's a good chunk of Spike Lee's filmography that I hadn't seen. Seen odds and sods of it, but certainly not all of them. So it was uh, nice to get an opportunity to go back and revisit. Uh, well, actually, uh, to watch most of these for the first time and revisit a few of them. Okay. As we said, they were, we're going to start at the very beginning. A very good place to start, as that annoying singing nun once said. (laughs) So, Scott, she's got to have it. Yes, this, of course, as mentioned, is Lee's first full-length feature, which sees us drop in on the life and relationships of Tracy Kimula John's Nola Darling, a young Brooklynite who is juggling three men. Not, like, literally, that would require a great deal of upper body strength. No, she's in simultaneous relationships with the seemingly upstanding Tommy Redmond Hicks' Jamie Overstreet, the ludicrous male model John Canada Terrell's Greer Childs, and Spike Lee's Mars Blackman, who I believe we're supposed to find amusing. At least Nola does, so I suppose that's the draw for her. The three relationships have their ups and downs, with Nola not particularly committing to any of them, and it says here, enjoying the freedom that men have to cheat on their girlfriends. And, well, it is cheating, at least until it becomes clear to all parties involved that there are other parties involved, at which point the parties start to come to a close. In terms of a plot recap, perhaps surprisingly, there's not a great deal more to it than that. It's hanging its hat on being a sex-positive story with a female lead, and... Well, while that does qualify as something different, even today, to be honest, I'm not sure she's got to have it does the best job of explaining itself. To be sure, it's much more than a gender-flipped Alfie, but there's not room in the script, or perhaps in the time and budget, to go much beyond the surface of things, either in the characterizations of Nola's blokes, who all come across as total tools, or Nola's philosophy of her relationships. When combined with a rape scene that's so underplayed in terms of impact to all parties concerned, be forgiven for thinking that it wasn't a rape scene, uh, there's perhaps a good few reasons that Lee has chosen to recently re-explore these topics and themes in a currently 19-episode television format rather than a, what, 
80 minute film once you take out Spike's dad's jazz stylings <laughs> so I'm in a slightly odd place but she's got to have it to be sure it's an assured debut feature and regularly placed Lee on the talent to watch list and while I'm already on board with the central message about the double standard on male and female promiscuity as I'm sure are all the intelligent discerning open minded and fresh scented listeners of this podcast I don't think that this film does a particularly great job of explaining that message for the Neanderthal sections of the audience who to be fair were never going to watch this anyway with a few ropey performances, I've perhaps got more niggles with this film than any other of Lee's work that we'll talk about uh, in this series. But broadly speaking, I still rather enjoyed it, and I won't dissuade anyone from catching up with it, but it's perhaps not the best place to start your explorations of this catalogue. What do you make of it? Not an awful lot. I enjoyed it, but it didn't do a great deal for me. I got to the end of it and I was like, oh, oh well, I've watched that now and... <laughs> It, it had some people in it who couldn't act. That's largely what I came away with it from. Like that's <laughs> that. Actually, I think I don't know if it's because they were are they, are they amateur performers or are they just sort of like less expensive performers because it's a filmmaker starting out without a big budget. But yeah, the acting is pretty rotten in the film. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- there were definite points when Tracy Camilla Johns, in particular, is clearly reading her script. Yeah. That's a no-no. Yeah, I mean, I would forgive um, Bill Lee shows up at, at some point as, is it Nola's dad, I think, um, and is quite clearly reading <laughs> reading off uh, the cue cards. Uh, but that's fine. He's a musician. He's not really an actor. I'm sure he was just there because he's the only person that would do it for the minuscule budget that this was shot for. But yeah, the, when Spike Lee is giving you your best performance, that's not a good sign because he's not <laughs> that good an actor. <laughs> no. Just a as a slight aside there, Scott, because I was going to mention it at some point, and we may as well do it now, you have given me the opportunity, that Spike Lee has fortunately gone over the urge to give himself big roles in his films, yes. but it should be very much mentioned he is very much not Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> He's considerably yes. higher calibre of an actor than Quentin Tarantino, whose presence in his own films tends to bring the thing to a juddering halt. Yes. Um <laughs> In this case, in the second film we're going to talk about, I think he's actually really good. Perhaps in Malcolm X, it's where he's least effective, but, you know, he's not always awful. But at the same time, yes, when you're relying on him to be your, your best actor, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's not the most auspicious of beginnings. Yeah. But again, though, maybe, maybe beginnings is the thing. Acting does require practice. It is something that people get better at with age. So perhaps I'm being a little too harsh on these people. And perhaps it's not just ability. You might have to read your lines just because you don't have time. Mm. You don't have a lot of money to pay people to do rehearsal and stuff. Again, but maybe I'm now being too generous. I don't know. <laughs> Certainly, talking of people going on to be much better, though, Joali, Spike Lee's sister, is is quite stilted in this as well. But uh, by the time even the the next film we cover, she's so much better. Yeah. So maybe just it could be. And you're thinking you're starting off with your first feature. There's so many things. Maybe the the director doesn't know quite how to um, get things out. Or if you're directing your own sibling, it's like maybe that's a bit more stilted. And there are also things that you can forgive in a debut feature. Yeah. I'm not sure I can forgive Greer though because that's such a ridiculous character. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's I mean it's entertaining. It's got a good message. I think. I think though, even for an 84 minute film, it kind of struggles to fill that running time. Yeah, it's a bit slight. Um, yes, 
it feels like there's a number of good ideas in here, and I can see why you, you want to come back to this and take another crack at it, but it, it, it doesn't quite land uh, no. in, uh, looking at it from space year 2020. Um, it feels a little bit perhaps obvious in its messaging, and compared to pretty much anything else we'll talk about from this point on, or it's very amateurish, um, which... But again, as I say, uh, as a debut performance feature, it's, it is assured there's not been too many debuts that are, that are much better than this. Um, so, yeah, you know, take that for what we'll say. I wouldn't necessarily dissuade anyone from uh, watching it, and I think it's a it's interesting, particularly if you've seen his later work, to go back and see what it was like at this, in his first feature. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not a great place to start from if you're if you're not seen any of his films. Yeah, that's that. I'll just slightly rearrange your words there, Scott, and like see his later work. And then go back and look at it. Yeah, <laughs> interest. It's, like it's, it's certainly not the place to start. There's some interest there, some good ideas. It's. I do actually quite like the the use of color in it. There's one moment where it becomes color, and yeah. that's actually quite uh, striking. Although it, I feel like it might have been used with a bit more impact. Mm. But I quite like that. He's he's clearly experimenting with things, finding his feet as a director. And perhaps even as a scriptwriter too. I think the problem for me, the main issue really, is that the acting, particularly from the lead, is so. Well, it's bad. <laughs> there, there really isn't another word for it, and it's not. It's not consistently bad. There are moments where she's better than others, but with like her quite stilted performance and the fact she's reading the lines so often, and she's not the only person that's. It stops she's settling into the film. Mm-hmm. I think. And it's not that I felt particularly unforgiving of it, but I think perhaps if I hadn't already seen several of the films from the director, I might have let it slide a bit. And like if I was starting with this, knowing that this is where he was starting, like, okay, but knowing how much better he could do. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only other thing, this is, this is neither a criticism nor praise, I thought it was kind of strange, uh, and I'm curious to know whether you felt anything similar, but... Tommy Redmond Hex, who plays Jamie Overstreet, Scott, did he feel out of time to you? Yes, he feels like a character from a 70s film. Yeah, or I, mean, I thought actually maybe like the 50s or 60s. Yeah. <laughs> something about the way he looks and his voice. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad it's not just me. You did pick up on that as well. Yeah, I didn't know if part of that was just because I don't think I mentioned it, but yes, obviously a lot of this film is shot in black and white. Uh, maybe that was just <laughs> giving us that idea, but yeah. Yeah. Um, he doesn't seem to be in the same time frame as the other characters in it. <laughs> no, is it, I'm not, I couldn't quite put my finger on exactly what it was. I couldn't tell whether it was his clothing or... I, I think it's his manner of speaking, but I'm not certain. Yeah. But yeah, he just felt like he's from a completely different generation. It was so strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely one of those ones you mark down as for enthusiasts only. Yeah. For completionists. But it's not bad. It's just that it's certainly compared to most of his other stuff. It, it's it's so much less competent in yeah. a lot of ways, while still being you know quite impressively solid for a debut feature. Um, and again, as with many debut features, not a big budget at all. So it's okay, I guess. Just put that pretty low down your priority list if you're interested yeah. in Spike Lee films. So shall we move onwards to take a look at Do the Right Thing? I do believe that would be the right thing to do, Scott. Part of the purpose of this series of episodes is to determine our opinion on this, but it may be that Spike Lee's greatest work is 1989's Do the Right Thing. 
only his third feature. Beginning as a slice of life in Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant neighbourhood, the heatwave being experienced in the city puts pressure on the residents, causing prejudices to come to the surface and racial fault lines to crack, with the film culminating in a black man being choked to death by a white police officer. The film opens with Lee setting out to stall early, as Rosie Perez's Tina dances vibrantly and sensually to Public Enemy's iconic anthemic Fight the Power, a song which was written for this film. Tina has a fractious relationship and a son with Mookie, played by Lee himself. Mookie lives with his sister, Jade, Joao Lee, and works as a pizza delivery guy for Danny Aelio's cell, who runs a local pizza joint with his sons Pino, John Torturo, and Vito, Richard Edson. Other neighbourhood characters include Da Mayor, the wonderful, wonderful Ozzie Davis, Smiley, Roger Gwenver Smith, a young man with a learning disability and a fascination with Malcolm X, and a really irritating resemblance to Daniel Day-Lewis that made me think he looked like Daniel Day-Lewis in my left foot every time I saw him. Mookie's incendiary b-boyfriend at Buggin' Out, Giancarlo Esposito, Samuel L. Jackson's DJ, Senor Love Daddy, and Bill Nunn's Radio Raheem, recognisable from blocks away by the sound of Public Enemy blasting from his boombox. The characters are more or less all memorable, and all have some part to play in either the events leading up to the finale, or in painting the texture of the neighbourhood. There's no fat, nothing is unnecessary. So, most of the characters now established, the main plot of the film begins to emerge. Pino, despite his favourite celebrities being black, as Mookie points out to him, is deeply racist, and resents that his father opened his pizza via in a predominantly black neighbourhood. Meanwhile, Buggin' Out questions Sal as to why there are no black faces amongst the restaurant's wall of fame, only white Italian-Americans, and when he doesn't receive a satisfactory answer, decides to organise a boycott of Sal's. This should be an empty gesture. Buggin' Out comes across as an all-mouth and no-action kind of guy, and indeed most people are inclined to ignore him. Only Radio Rahim will stand with him and the tensions that have been rising during the day finally break when Sal demands Raheem turn off his boombox before serving him. Bugging out begins the racial slurs, and surprisingly it's Sal himself, not Pino, that returns them, belying his earlier statements and starting a fight. This leads to first a death and then destruction, but despite an unlawful killing at the hands of the NYPD, the news story on the radio the next morning... Tellingly, it's about the mayor's desire to investigate the property damage. I watched Do the Right Thing for only the first time only a couple of years ago now, and while I enjoyed it, I wasn't entirely sure what to make of it, and mentally filed it under. Yeah, pretty good. Now, I'll have to have words with my past self, because on watching it again for this podcast, it's so clearly something very, very special. It's superbly made and written, with raw emotion, vitality, a superb cast playing wonderful characters, and a pretty decent chunk of humour, despite its themes and climax. There's something almost stagey, or at least backlotty, about the way Do The Right Thing looks, despite all being shot in Bed-Stuy, but I attribute that to the way DP Ernest Dickerson has captured the hot summer sun. Everything is saturated and colourful, reflecting the personalities and passions of the film's inhabitants, but heightened and slightly hyper-real, as if the insufferable heat has concentrated everything. Though it could also be the late 80s fashion. 
It wasn't um, subtle. <laughs> Bright is very much the order of the day. What else? Uh, the music is excellent, with a score by Bill Lee, Spike's father, mixed with Public Enemy, and Bill. It's just excellent. All around. Yeah, um, I didn't realise that uh, Fight the Power was done for this film. That's, uh, that's interesting at all. I didn't also know that the power in this case was a pizzeria, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, don't think I've got all that much to add to what you're saying there. It's uh, it is a really good film. I, I, this is one of these films I'm sure I must have seen a long time ago, but it's been so long ago that I don't actually really remember what, what I thought of it at this point. So uh, it was a good excuse to come back and see it. And uh, yes, it is really good. Um, lots of really interesting and memorable characters. And just uh, say yes. yes uh, Nice little combination of being funny as well as being, you know, disturbingly upsetting in places. And sadly, uh, every bit as relevant uh, today as it was then. Uh, this is what was dedicated to, what, like six uh, families that had uh, someone killed by police police brutality. And if that mm-hmm. had been a running tally, uh, that that redu- um, dedication card would then be about half the film's runtime. So you know, obviously everything that's been explored in this is still every bit as relevant now as, as, as it was then hence these are protests so yeah hell of a it's one hell of a film um, in terms of Spike Lee's other output you know this you say could well be uh, a high water mark there's probably one I think we get to in this episode that will challenge it a little bit but this is probably the best of his his, uh, his work to this point by a long shot um, yeah it's really assuredly made energetic and vibrant and deeply affecting. Yes, uh, absolutely no reason not to give this the highest possible recommendation. Yeah, uh, the the progression from she's going to have it to this in three films is yeah, remarkable. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. This is just a phenomenal film. It's there's a lot of efficiency too in the characters. Like none of the characters. Well, I mean, maybe a couple do, but for the most part, the characters don't feel like stereotypes or archetypes. The, the kind of in while you don't always see a lot of all the characters, they feel like people. Yeah, right. That you can imagine for the most part, those people, except possibly Martin Lawrence, because well, Martin Lawrence. <laughs> but um, and yeah, some of the characters you know are slightly heightened. Uh, Bugging out in particular, you know, it's kind of a it's a hyper real character, I guess. But yeah, the characters all feel real, and it this way, it does feel. Like it's just a slice of life for the first part of the film. It's just it's like this uh, a neighbourhood with a lot of interesting people in it, and you're just gonna get like a wee snippet of one of their days, and it's really just end up in it. And had it just been that, it would actually been a really entertaining film. Yeah. But then when the, all the the cracks start to show and all the, the tensions that are clearly been under the surface all begin to come to a head, and it's really really fascinating. And honestly, I don't know what was wrong with me the last time I saw that. I was like. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't. What was like? Eh, I'm not sure about this. And like when Mookie throws the the rubbish bin through the window, I'm like, uh, should he have done that? And I, I watched it this time. Like Jesus, of course you should have done it. What does a bit of glass matter to um, compared to somebody's life? You know, it's like it's, it was so irrelevant. I don't understand why I was even asking that question. It's just it's so assured. But again, at the same time, where there's that. There's this undercurrent of indignation and anger, as well as empathy. There's a lot of Spike Lee's films that really show a real sense of empathy. 
But while it's all there, and there's also a lot of humour. There's, there's even, like, humour in the very last scene. When um, Mookie bends down to pick up the money that he's told Sally doesn't want. Yeah. Even, like, the very last moment, there's still bits of humour. Yeah. And it's throughout that. And that always helps to leaven something, too. But it's also... It's quite a trick of writing to be able to, to work that in without it ever feeling jarring. I mean, obviously, real life is full of moments of juxtaposition like that all the time, but in film, it often doesn't work. It just it can take you out of it. Yeah. You don't get the tone just right, but do the right thing. It's so good about that. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable this is only his third film. And I say that, actually, you know, probably I've said about lots of people, maybe by the third film you're really getting into your stride. But still, and he's only, is he slightly he's 25 when he did that? It's just coming on just a couple of years from she's got to have it. It's like, with a real, it's a real voice as well as ability and just married them together so well. It's also the high point of Lee's on, on, on-screen career. And he doesn't feel, to me at least, out of place in this film. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, whether, for instance, in She's Gotta Have It, he kind of saw himself as that kind of character, or maybe it's like, hmm, I don't have any um, anybody else to cast or any money to pay anybody else, I'll play this role. Yeah. Whereas in Do The Right Thing, it feels like he actually had something to say and wanted to play that character to see that it was done properly. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I think this is probably... So it probably certainly actually my favourite Spike Lee film. No, I've not seen everything yet, um, and I've still got some new stuff to come to for the next couple of episodes. But at the moment, my favourite Spike Lee film, and probably they're mm. a really good jumping in point if you're not familiar with his other stuff. Yeah, yeah, can certainly agree on that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let us move on a few years. Uh, no, a year, I think, just the next year, isn't it? To more Better Blues, Scott. Yes, in a way, More Better Blues revisits the themes of She's Gotta Have It, but from a male point of view, namely that of jazz trumpeter Bleak Gilliam, played by Denzel Washington, his jazz quintet or the star attractions at a nightclub, although Wesley Snipes' Shadow Henderson is causing some friction with his grandstanding solos. The largely ineffectual band manager, Spike Lee's giant, advises Bleak to have a word, less shadow, well, I'm not sure what, mount a coup or something. Um, meanwhile, Bleak's career is juggled with two women, not, like, literally that would require a great deal of upper body strength. <laughs> yeah. uh, Joali's Indigo Downs and Cinder Williams' Clark Betancourt may not know about each other, but they do know that Bleak's music is the only thing that he's truly committed to. The breakpoints in Bleak's love life are perhaps obvious, but soon things are fracturing in his career too, with the rest of the band looking for their promised pay rise that Giant has not been able to secure from the club's owners, Mo and Joel Flatbush. Uh, Mo and Joe would have been better actually but Mo and Josh Flatbush played by John and Nicholas Turturro this can only accelerate Shadow's designs on putting together his own band perhaps with Clark as a singer but ultimately it's a fallout from Giant's gambling addiction that's going to cause issues big enough for Bleak to radically change his outlook on life to a large degree this is a film about loyalty whether that's between Bleak and his old friend Giant or between the band members or the lack of it between Bleak and Indigo and Clark and the consequences of those bonds it shares a little in common with other Lee joints in as much as it's throwing a fair amount of thematic content with you uh, but unlike his next film Jungle Fever discussed in podcast Passim here it's woven into the narrative in a much more satisfying way 
backed up with an almost impeccable series of acting performances. I think this is the last time Lee casts himself in a role of any huge significance, which is good. He can now afford better. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to like in Mo Better Blues. It's an easy watch with a great soundtrack, interesting characters and a solid narrative. Not peak Lee, perhaps, but a very solid mid-league finish for the youngster who will surely be one to watch for next season. I enjoyed this film a great deal. Um, It's less thematically driven than for instance do the right thing and for the next one I'm going to talk about it's um, perhaps slightly more kind of mainstream in that regard mm. but it's it's just a thoroughly entertaining film Denzel Washington is great as you might expect and one particularly good reaction shot in this film I liked too when Giant comes to tell Bleak that remember we had this bet when you bought those dresses in Paris that the, <laughs> they wouldn't come to the a club I wouldn't see each other in the same dress at the same time <laughs> and just like the penny dropping yeah and the, uh, Denzel Washington's face just collapsing yeah ah, <laughs> fantastic scene fantastic yeah it's I don't think I have a lot to say beyond what you said other than it's, I really enjoyed it what I would say though so one thing I noticed is one thing I, that I don't like about Spike Lee films and I'm not sure if it's in his later stuff, actually. I need to pay more attention when I come to revisit them. But there's a lot of underscoring in his films, and I hate it because I hate underscoring. Yeah. And in this film, it's the one film where I don't mind it for the most part. There are one or two scenes where it's a bit overdone. But because this film's about music and yeah. any scenes with Bleak in particular, the music is his life. So the fact that there's basically a constant background soundtrack actually works for the film. Yeah. Where it's like all the other films, it's like, I would like to hear what people are saying, please turn it down. <laughs> Which I think was a big um, problem we had with Jungle Fever now that I recall. Yes, yes it was. There's a scene where Wesley Snipes is talking to his wife in that closet and like you can't hear a word they're saying because <laughs> the underscore is so bad. Yeah. So th- this is a trait I do not care for in Spike Lee's films. <laughs> it's, it's one of only two... Re- um, repeating issues I have, the other of which I will come to in the next film. <laughs> but it's, um, but yeah, in this film, it kind of works actually. It makes sense. The only issue, other than that, I had with this film is that I felt that the the end was kind of rushed. It's yes. building so nicely. Then it gets to the point where he he can't play again. He tries to play on stage with Shadow. He goes out into the rain gets soaked, almost accosts um, Shuali's character. And then suddenly it's like four years just accelerate and a kind of weirdly fast montage. And it's just like, why did that? It just doesn't fit. Yeah, I mean, the whole ending, I mean, just before that, there's before he gets on stage, that's that's been another time jump of like the best part of a year or something like that. And it leads into an ending that I'm not altogether sure that Bleak deserves to get. Um, certainly on the basis of, of what's what's happened. And uh, yeah, I'd love to know a bit more of the character motivations between Indigo deciding to take Bleak back in after all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's... Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't seem like it's explained it quite well enough at that point. But so It, it feels yeah. like there was like a limitation in the length of the script and he'd written all the script <laughs> up to this point and then had to do the rest of it in two pages yeah <laughs> and it's almost like it's two pages presented on screen yeah it's the actual end end makes sense it's like he's kind of being like his father and how he grew up but without being quite so hard on the kid yeah 
right and that's okay like maybe history repeating or like f- being like your father and stuff like that okay but all the stuff up between that between yeah. the, the turn up <laughs> indigo's apartment and that it doesn't I don't buy it and it's yeah it's it's literally rushed it just yes. it flies through it in the film and because the rest of it is so enjoyable i was really really just sitting smiling through this whole film really enjoying it that it stands out so much because it's it almost feels amateurish. Yes. Given how competent the rest of the film is, it's very strange. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, yes, another one highly recommended, though. It's very enjoyable. Yes, yes. Small blemish, but wouldn't let that get in the way of uh, giving a lookout. Uh, shall we crash on to Malcolm X then? Indeed. I really don't think there's all that much that you can say about a biopic their structures tend to be similar and they tend to suffer from the same problems. Those of invention, imagination, excision, and, well, downright fabrication. Generally differing only in degree. The crucial factors then are to be found in subject and actor, and I can think of few more compelling combinations than the civil rights leader Malcolm X, as portrayed by Denzel Washington. Told in a linear fashion, with the occasional flashback, Lee's Malcolm X covers most of the significant portions of the once Malcolm Little's adult life. Early on, we see the beginning of his relationship with the White Sophia, Battlestar Galactica's Kate Vernon, and his move from Boston to Harlem, where he becomes employed by Delroy Lindo's gangster, West Indian Archie. Crossing Archie sees him flee back to Boston, where he starts a lucrative career as a burglar until he is caught and sentenced harshly. Less for the crime of breaking and entering, and more for the crime of being a black man in a relationship with a white woman. While in prison, he meets Baines, Albert Hall, an adherent of the Nation of Islam, who helps Malcolm through the withdrawal of his cocaine addiction and aids in his transition to being a Muslim. Leaving prison six years later, clean, learned in scripture and highly politicised and passionate, Little travels to Chicago to meet the head of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, played here by Al Freeman Jr., but for some reason voiced by Pete Postlethwaite in The Usual Suspects, which I, for one, found very odd. <laughs> Muhammad directs Malcolm to replace his original surname, Little, with the now-famous X, and appoints him a preacher in the Nation of Islam. We then follow him as he becomes a popular but controversial figure in the civil rights movement. Through his Hajj to Mecca, the re-evaluation of his beliefs regarding white people, his disillusionment with the Nation of Islam, and ultimately to his assassination. It's difficult to argue that biopics have a great deal of value beyond entertainment, but Spike Lee's Malcolm X may be one of the few that do. It's more than three hours, which never bores, bringing humanity, depth and nuance to a man that is still vilified in some quarters today, portrayed as he is as an angry and violent man who urged death to the white man. Ignorantly, or conveniently, ignoring his walking back of those views after his pilgrimage. While it suffers from some of the ills of all biopics that I began talking about, Malcolm X still at least leaves a lot of the edgier statements in there, and is not afraid to show some of the man's faults. The film is full of empathy, and attempts to understand its protagonist. While one might expect that Malcolm X would speak most to a black audience, it is absolutely not exclusionary. It's an inspirational film in that it portrays a human with human problems who overcame them and changed his life. Key to that being successful is Denzel Washington, 
who is magnificent throughout, seldom showy, always utterly believable, be that full of righteous anger or oozing charm in a natty suit. Talking of, the costume design is excellent and Malcolm X is given some incredible ensembles to wear in the first act. Though, here I have one of my few issues with the film. Though one I share with many period pieces. Why is everyone so amazingly dressed? (laughs) Now, perhaps people simply cared more in the past, but it seems there should at least be someone who looks as ill-attired as, say, many of the characters we found in our next film, Clockers. Mm -hmm. Ernest Dickerson is a DP again, and he shoots the film in three distinct ways for each of the acts, with warmth and saturation for his early days in Boston and Harlem, and cold for Malcolm's time in prison visually marking the periods of his life. Apparently his skill doesn't extend to talking Spike Lee out of using his double dolly though, as that makes another unwelcome appearance here, though that's less nitpicking than my continued bafflement is at its use. It resolutely does not convey what Spike Lee thinks it conveys, and feels completely out of place in the fleeting moment in which it is utilised here. Also, Spike Lee in this film looks like a wee boy wearing his daddy's clothes. (laughs) Like Do the Right Thing and a number of other Lee works, Malcolm X was heralded on its release a few months after the LA riots which came in the wake of the acquittal of the police officers who beat Rodney King as timely. A word I am weary of because it seems to have never not been the case regardless (laughs) of when you watch it. Timeless then? Well, Christ, let's hope not. But Good films are good films, regardless of time. And this is a very good film. Yeah, um, I suppose I won't repeat too much of what you're saying there, Drew, but I do agree completely. Um, in terms of it being a biopic, it is one of my favourites. Um, perhaps my favourite. Um, I can't think of one I like better than this, yeah. in terms of that genre. Yes, it's incredibly well made. And I think I think a really useful film uh, to keep coming back to, particularly because Malcolm X tends to be quite poorly understood and i'm not just saying about his um earlier career which uh which i i hadn't i wasn't all that well aware of until i'd seen this film i certainly didn't expect there to be quite so much swing dancing um <laughs> in, a, in a film about malcolm x uh, but yeah a lot of his philosophy is gets boiled down to a degree where it's not particularly helpful and oh yeah, he was the violent one right and that's very much not the case. Um, he was one that hated the white people, right? And that's also very much not the case. Even that is most strident. It wasn't the case, um, and it even milled out later on as well, as you as you mentioned. Um, so it's it's an interesting little refresher course for someone who is, mm. I think, unfairly pilloried a lot of the time um, in terms of not being a helpful um, for the, the struggle um, for black rights. And well, that aside, it's just a really good film. And it's really enjoyable and it's really entertaining. And Denzel Washington is fantastic and everyone else is fantastic in it as well. And um, look, it's got Delroy Lindo in it. So there's always going to be a winner. You can, you can never get too much Delroy Lindo in anything. So uh, yeah, it's just a tremendous film all the way around. For me, it's up there with Do the Right Thing in terms of Spike Lee's output and certainly something we should definitely be recommending that everyone watch. Carve out the three hours and give this a look because it's really good. 
Oh yes, and the dolly shots. Yes, absolutely stupid. I don't, I've never liked it in anything. Um, I didn't. I can't remember it being a Malcolm X uh, that much. So this is probably one of the least objectionable ones, I would guess. But yeah, every other time we use it, it, it does not look like all it's doing is detaching the characters from the world they're in, and it looks stupid. And I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> Which is what Spike Lee's trying to do with it, but it, it just it always looks so stupid. It looks it's particularly because it it takes you out of the film so much. Yeah, but it's so irritating. Plus, he does tend to do it in times where there's no particular need for them to be detached from it. I, I understand using that as a technique, but he just doesn't. He seems to use it at like random places. Like, isn't it in Jungle Fever? I think it is just when two characters are walking in the street having conversation, and there's no need for it to be used there, and it looks daft. Um, yeah, that, that's yeah. exactly that's the first time I ever really thought about that because I, I didn't. I'd seen it before then, but. When I saw Jungle Fever, it was the first time I, I really noticed it. And I do remember mm. we talked about this. I guess, yeah, it's, it's when uh, Wesley Snipes and Spike Lee are walking down the street and it's like, they, they just look like they're floating. Yeah. I think Jungle Fever is possibly the worst use of it. Yeah. Because it just, it, it's got nothing. It just, like, they're just talking. <laughs> it's like, I've not done it in this film yet. I'm going to do it here. So, <laughs> yeah. It's in the other ones, um, and it's amusing to note that in, when Spike Lee's talking about it in conversation with, Ernest Dickerson particularly said, like, we need to not overuse it, so I'll only ever use it when the story calls from, like, it's never called for it, stop <laughs> using it. Yes. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's so unnecessary. And in Malcolm X, it's, it's perhaps because it's so fleeting, it's one of the more egregious uses of it, because it's, it does nothing. And his idea is that it, it's showing, you know, kind of someone almost being taken out of reality or or life happening without them being detached more, or something like that. And it never works. It just looks silly. Yeah. Um, and this, it happens, it, if it's 10 seconds, I'd be surprised. It's so short in this film, so if you weren't aware of it, I'm not surprised, Scott. Yeah. But it happens just as he's going to the ballroom uh, at the end of the film. I think it's right before the moment when he meets that woman in the street, and, yeah. and she says okay. he looks worried, and like... Um, I know who you are, and I think you're doing good things. Um, and basically, Jesus is going to look out for you. Yeah. But <laughs> um, you know, inappropriate. Drop the ball on that one. <laughs> she wasn't saying it maliciously or anything like that. So, um, that, that was her belief. But it's like, I think it's just before that, he's, he's just come down that street with uh, um, that hat on just before he goes to the ballroom. And it, it, it's like five seconds or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and it's, why? If you're going, <laughs> no, it's. And yes, it's also in the next film, unfortunately. I don't, it bothers me because it, it takes me out of the films. Yeah. I, it, it doesn't work and I don't like it. <laughs> but really, that's, that's a very minor issue to pick with with this film. Yes. And my talk about the clothes and stuff is like, I do legitimately mean what I say. I was like, why does everyone look so perfect? But also, I think I'm kind of just jealous because <laughs> it's, it's a time when like men got to wear. I suppose you can if you want to, but still, you know what I mean? Like, men got to wear, like, colours and stuff. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just like a, if you're dressing up, it's not just a black suit or, like, a shirt and trousers. It's like, no. At one point, Denzel Washington's wearing this massive white brim hat and a black and red striped suit. And like, <laughs> why are men's clothes not fun anymore? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, will we move on to Clockers and Scott and see if we're also rounding out with a recommendation? Yes, um... 
Clockers, which is set in the projects of Brooklyn, where we focus on the life of a street drug dealer or clocker, Mickey Pfeiffer's Roland Strike Dunham, working for Delroy Lindo's Rodney Little, the local kingpin. The main drama in the film kicks off when Little tasks Strike with the removal of another one of Little's goons, who Little believes to be stealing from him. The homicide of said goon falls to Harvey Keitel's detective Rocco Klein and John Turturro's detective Larry Mazzilli, uh, although it would seem to be an easy one for them to clear up, what with the strike's brother Victor confessing to have shot him in self-defence. But Rocco doesn't buy it, uh, suspecting that he's trying to take the fall for his brother and sets about trying to prove it. This has all proven too much for Strike, who's now looking to exit the drug-dealing game and perhaps stop some of the kids mistakenly looking up to him as, as a role model, like Pee Wee Love's Tyrone, and stop him from following his life choices. Although, unsurprisingly, Little is having none of that, especially when he starts to suspect that Strike may be coming to an agreement with the police to bust him. The event that really causes all of this to come to a head is perhaps best left to the viewer to discover, even though it does seem barely related to the actions and decisions of the main characters. And there's also a little rope-a-dope concerning the narrative that Detective Rock was come up with uh, in the later stages that's a semi-effective twist, only undermined somewhat by the questionable character motivations required for it. Uh, But this is another Lee film where the setting, the characters and the politics of it are much more compelling than the narrative that they're living through, which is perhaps much more of a problem in Clockers than the other films we've discussed today, purely because for once this is more focused on narrative, and it's just not all that great. Not bad, to be sure, but not great. Again, it's by no means an unenjoyable film, and one that has more than enough acting chops on display across a very talented cast to get by on, but this is not essential viewing. Yeah, I, I would struggle to recommend this one. It's not bad, but I wasn't, I wasn't particularly excited by most of it, to be honest. Perhaps most notable these days for having a, a Harvey Keitel performance that's somewhat restrained, which... Uh, <laughs> was not the case soon after this. <laughs> yes. uh, it's a mid-1990s film with Harvey Cartel playing a police officer that didn't make me feel uncomfortable watching, so I'll take that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I recently enjoyed Clockers. It's decent, but it's not special. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always good to see Delroy Lindo. Mm-hmm. I think if, if I have a problem with this film, I suspect the same problem you have, Scott, is that Kai Pfeiffer's character's brother, like, why did he do what he did? Yes, yeah. Doesn't um, it doesn't even make a lot of sense at all? It's it is sort of slightly set up, but not really. Um, it's like the world's least convincing attempt at convincing uh, from his brother to get to do it. But no, it just doesn't really wash. Yeah, it's like, um, I mean, it's not that the act itself makes no sense. It's just that you, you need to explain it. It could be explained. Yes, um, you put in a little bit about. I don't know, intrusive thoughts of something that he'd been having before or something like that, or mm. or that there was actually something with this person or, or something like that. But it's just like, he's just, what? He's a bit tired? <laughs> yes. So he does that? I'm not, I, I'm not seeing the unbelievable impetus for that at all. No, not at all. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a pity. Um, but the, I mean, the acting's good. It's just that the, the narrative needs more structure and depth I think because it's when the kid doing what he did the least set of that up is like he gets threatened by Delroy Lindo's partner yeah uh, but the, the the brother I was like no that, that does not wash yeah does sense yeah it, 
wonder what the book's like that this is based on because it feels like it's just lobbing a few drama bombs at the end just to, to kind of bring things to a head and it didn't feel particularly organic certainly not in terms of the rest of the story so which is a shame because I say there's lots of things in there I do like I do like most of the acting performances um, it's it's well shot. Uh, the setting's nice. In terms of, uh, it's nice to see that kind of that kind of area on on camera. Um, most of the characters, th- th- that those actions aside, the characters feel fairly believable. Uh, Mickey Pfeiffer's really good, and there, there are things in isolation that I quite like, but it just doesn't quite hang together as being anything more than okay. Yeah, good to see Keith David in there. Yes, I was like <laughs> Keith David, but yeah, it's just. It's one of those films that kind of borders on the frustrating because it could be something special. Yeah. You've got solid director, the acting's really good. There's clearly a story to be told in that area. But it's like, it's like, well, that's the story you told. That story doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily dissuade anyone from watching it, but again, lower down the priority stakes. So it's, I mean, I guess simply in terms of Spike Lee, it's probably less interesting than his first film. Yeah. But it's considerably better than his first film, so I'd put it higher than she's going to have it. It does have the double dolly shot, but at least only Spike Lee in a cameo role this time. Yes. <laughs> so that's progress, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> guess that'll wrap us up for today, then? I guess so. Yeah, so we'll we'll double dolly for the next, to the next episode, where we'll talk about another five Spike Lee films, but until such time, I would be grateful if you would take care of yourself and each other. Um, I, If you want to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, you can do so. Uh, we're on the emails at podcast at fudsonfilm.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. We're on Twitter, twitter.com slash fudsonfilm. And that'll do it, I think. Yes, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew shall do too. By any means necessary. Yeah, Dick? Sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and I'm just quoting the end of the 40 acres and the real film production slate. Um, I'm not trying to sound like anybody else, in case <laughs> that comes across badly. <laughs> Stop appropriating. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>